Welcome to the Daily Theology Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Oki. Today's episode features my conversation with Father Robert Imbelli. I first met Father Imbelli about 10 years ago when I was a student at Boston College. I took a course with him on the theology of Hansers von Balthasar, and it was a great course, and I was, I was very grateful to Father Imbelli for agreeing to talk with me by phone this summer about his own career in theology. In this episode, Father Imbelli talks a lot about the Italian-American Catholic subculture he grew up in and how that shaped his vocation to the priesthood and his vocation to study theology. He goes on to talk about how that vocation led him to study theology in Rome and how providentially his time in Rome corresponded with the four sessions of Vatican II. We also talk about the importance for Father Imbelli of writing for popular audiences, and he has written extensively for outlets like America and Commonweal and First Things. And towards the end, we talk about the movie A Quiet Place, which I am still too scared to watch, but Father Imbelli thinks might be one of the most Catholic movies of 2018. Moreover, with this episode, we have our very first book giveaway. Thanks to the kind people at Liturgical Press, you can receive your very own copy of Father Imbelli's book, Rekindling the Christic Imagination. To enter to win, please either retweet the tweet announcing this episode, or, if you're not a Twitter person, leave a review of the podcast on iTunes and email a screenshot to dailytheo at gmail.com. I'll announce the winner on the next episode of the podcast. Thanks also to our Patreon supporters. If you, while listening to the podcast, wonder to yourself, how can I help this ship stay afloat? Then head on over to patreon.com slash dtpodcast. Our supporters get a variety of benefits, including swag, automatic entry in any of our book giveaways, including this one, and the deep and abiding joy that comes from making the world a marginally better place. Please also leave comments on the blog post that accompanies this episode, or again, leave us a review on iTunes. Another way you can help is recommend the show to your friends, especially when they ask on Facebook or Twitter or over coffee, hey, does anyone have any good podcast suggestions? And as always, thanks for listening. Uh, so today for the Daily Theology Podcast, I'm talking with Father Robert Imbelli. Father Imbelli, thank you so much for being on the phone with me. Oh, it's a pleasure. As I like to start every episode, I wanted to ask you, you know, how did you come to be interested in theology or get into the study of theology? Well, I was raised in you know, what I would call a very uh, solid Catholic subculture. It was in the South Bronx, especially, I guess, in the uh, 1950s. It was actually what we called at the time an Italian national parish, so hmm. set up uh, particularly for the uh, pastoral needs of the Italian community. And, you know, though there were English masses, of course, there was still a noticeable Italian presence, both in, in the liturgy and in devotions and whatnot. And I remember as a youngster, you know, I was involved in the church as an altar server. Of course, these were in the days of what is now called the extraordinary form. Mm -hmm. But I had a, a large missile with the uh, both the Latin and the English text of the Mass, as as many, many people did. I mean, there, there's something of this myth that people only said the rosary during the Latin Mass. Uh, you know, there, 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 there was a, a considerable knowledge, uh, it was, uh, especially, obviously, about the, the younger people. But there was a psalm that was given as one of the prayers after communion. And it was actually, as I learned later, Psalm 84. 
uh, whose opening lines are, how lovely is your dwelling place, Lord God of hosts. And even as a uh, 10 or 11 year old, uh, those lines really resonated with me. And when people asked me, well, you know, what is the roots of your vocation to the priesthood? I I go back to uh, the lines of the psalm. Mm. But also, I think, you know, in in retrospect, it it was also um, the, the roots of sort of theological vocation, this fascination with both the aesthetic loveliness and the truth of the Lord's house. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I would say in many ways, I would trace the uh, theological concerns and commitment, to, you know, even back, you know, even my preteens, so to speak. Did you did you feel a vocation to the priesthood fairly early or, I mean, in, in your teens or did that come in college or? No, I would say that it was with me, you know, even before the teens, uh, mm. gravitating around, you know, that psalm, but you know, more widely the liturgy. And in those days, you know, as I mentioned, it was a, a very firm Catholic subculture. So though I went to public school for the first five years of my education, in the sixth grade, I, I switched to Catholic school, mm. which at the time was taught by the Christian brothers. The sixth, seventh, and eighth grades were taught by the Christian brothers. And, in retrospect, you know, there was a brother who uh, could not have been more than uh, 10, 12 years older than uh, his charges, <laughs> having to deal with 56 boys, uh, <laughs> ranging in age from, I guess, about uh, 12 to a couple who were left back two or three times. So they were certainly in their teens by then. And strangely, as, as strange as it sounds today, by the eighth grade, uh, people often uh, asked, uh, or the you know the the, the, the brothers would, would say, well, you know, what what are you going to do? And and vocations were very much stressed. Hmm. Uh, vocations for the religious life. Obviously, the brothers uh, dangled visions of their their high school, hmm. uh, which was, you know what we considered the country, but it was, you know, a few miles upstate in New York state and Daniel, you know, visions of ball fields and whatnot. So, uh, and a number, a number went from uh, the eighth grade, you know, into um, the brothers high school. Mm -hmm. Now, very few, you know, lasted all the way through, but, but it was not unusual. So I think by the eighth grade priesthood was pretty much fixed in my head. Hmm. Was it something that your, I, I assume it was encouraged in your family. Was it was it expected? I mean, did you have, you know, there's there's also sort of this stereotype from you know the the fifties Italian Catholic subculture of you know a giant family and and someone from that family must go into religious life and the uh, as it was uh, my family my immediate family was relatively small just myself and my brother. Okay. Uh, my mother was a pretty faithful church goer but by that i mean you know she never missed on sunday or holy days but she was not you know fanatically pious or anything mm-hmm. my dad which is not atypical with uh, an italian italian american uh, man never missed a funeral but you know would uh, <laughs> would only attend the uh, you know the the more stellar occasion so to speak okay. um, so yeah there was absolutely no pressure upon me Again, I, I think, you know, all things considered, they, they would have preferred uh, grandchildren. Mm. Uh, but as it turned out, they, um, my brother supplied the grandchildren. <laughs> well, that's good. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. Good for me, too. I have uh, two nephews and a niece with whom I'm very close. So That's wonderful. 
Yeah. And so you went on to Fordham for your undergraduate education. Is that right? I did. But before that, just to step back a second, okay. I, I did go to a Jesuit high school. Okay. And uh, again, this would have been in the uh, you know early to mid 50s where, you know, very much the ratio studiorum and uh, classical education was uh, to the fore. And so even in high school, I had four years of Latin and three years of Greek. And an important uh, undertaking in high school, which then did overlap, uh, especially into Fordham, was the, uh, the Sidality, which, as you know, you mm-hmm. know, was a Jesuit religious organization for lay people, the Sidality of Our Lady. And especially then at Fordham, where I continued in the Sidality, I was introduced to good theology then, more in the Sidality than in the mandatory religion classes, which, you know, were mandatory for, you know, all eight semesters of, mm-hmm. uh, of college, but were less theology than a sort of, you know, extension of catechetics. Yeah. But I was, you know, again, we're talking about years before Vatican II. So mm-hmm. we're talking about 56 to 60. And only in uh, 59 was the council announced. And even then it was not very much on, you know, the undergraduates' radar screen. <laughs> but at the Fordham College Sidality, uh, we were reading people, well, our Bible was Congar's lay people in the church. Hmm. And we're reading De Lubach and Daniel Lu. So I've always resisted, you know, the, the sense that, well, you know, Vatican II was, you know, uh, you know like Athena, you know, sprung, uh, you know, full-blown out of yeah. the head of John of uh, John the Twenty-Third. You know, as you well know, mm-hmm. uh, Pius XII was an important uh, prefiguration of the council with those, you know, important encyclicals on on scripture and on uh, the liturgy on the mystical body. Mm-hmm. So, you know, very much, I think, you know, we were keyed into what then was to come. So, you know, even then, uh, you know, theology was something that was uh, intriguing you know, to me, I mean, not only intriguing, but important to me. And then, to, you know, just to mention one, I, I, after Fordham, I then entered the seminary in the New York Seminary, which at the time, because uh, you, you could not begin theology without spending a year in the seminary prior to theology, what, what today we would call pre-theology. Mm-hmm. But in those days, it was the old six-six system of seminary education, uh, four years of high school and two years of college, and then two years of college and four years of theology. So I was, in effect, put back into senior year of college, which Hmm. was called second philosophy. But for me, it was something of a novitiate year. It was a a wonderful year. My biorhythms very much attuned to getting up early and going to sleep early. So uh, I fit in very well with the the seminary uh, (laughs) discipline of the day. And the name Phil Murnian may ring a bell to you. It it doesn't, actually. Monsignor Philip Murnian was very much instrumental with Cardinal Bernadine in founding the oh, Common okay. Ground Initiative okay. and died tragically young, you know, I mean, a, a real loss for the American church. But he was a few years ahead of me in the seminary, and he organized a reading group that year in the seminary. And I remember vividly that uh, we read things like Louis Bouillet's Liturgical Piety and mm-hmm. Gustave Thiel's uh, Holiness. So, you know, the theology, even in that one year, which was not strictly speaking, theology, you know, was very much to the forefront. And it was an important year, too, because it was a year that Dorwell's book on resurrection came out, which was an important breakthrough because, you know, the pastoral mystery was pretty much, had been pretty much truncated 
with all the focus on you know the death of Christ. Mm-hmm. And so Duowell's book was sort of revelatory, and uh, you know, so that the full pastoral mystery was brought to the fore, and that that came out in English the year that I was in the seminary in New York. And as I was leaving to go to Rome, because after that year, the other providential aspect of spending a year before formal theology was at the end of the year they chose people to go to Rome, mm. and I was chosen to go to Rome. And my going to Rome and my being in Rome coincided with the four sessions of Vatican II. Yeah. So, you know, it was just extremely formative and decisive for me. So I've always considered myself, quotes unquote, a Vatican II person priest. Yeah. But before I left, Monsignor Miles Burke, who was probably the foremost scholar at the seminary in New York at the time, gave me a little book by Yves Congar uh, called, it was not yet translated into English, Le Mystère du Temple, The mm-hmm. Mystery of the Temple. And I would call attention to that as a sort of decisive influence, you know, as I moved on to do formal theology in Rome. What was it about Congar's text that was so influential for you? Yeah, that, that's obviously a good question, and uh, I don't know <laughs> if I can do justice to it. You know, it's a theme which maybe we'll get back to as we go on a bit, but very much the sense of presence, mm. the presence of God throughout history. And of course, he's talking in particular about, you know, God's presence in the temple, you know, the temple of Solomon and then the second temple, but then finally in the temple, uh, which is the body of Christ. Mm. And so there was a sweep and a depth to it, you know, the sense of presence, which which I think we have lost somewhat, mm-hmm. you know, in quotes unquote, a secular age, you know, maybe we could get onto that a bit later. And, you know, just to retrace our steps for a minute, I think, you know, in that subculture of which we spoke early on, there was very much a vivid sense of the presence of the Lord. As I said, you know, one of my uh, key moments was, you know, the, how lovely is your dwelling place, mm-hmm. O Lord of hosts, but prayed in the church, you know, after communion. You know, in retrospect and, and thinking thinking about it, I, I, I do think that there was a, much about that subculture and the Latin liturgy, uh, but all the things that went with it. Uh, you know, I was thinking that it was very much, uh, you know, a sensate experience in church, you know, that the senses were really touched by by sound, by music. So, you know, the, the sense of the Latin Mass and the whole liturgy surrounding it, you know, as, as somehow detached was not my experience. Mm. And, you know, in conjunction with that, the, the sense of the seasons, and we, we very much had a sense of the seasons. I know part of that was due also to the culture of the time. You know, you, you, will, you never had a strawberry in January. Sure, yeah. And you never played baseball in January. Yeah. But, you know, now the seasons have been all amalgamated so that it's hard to tell when one ends yeah. or when one begins. The, the rough edges have been smoothed out. Yeah. No question. And yeah. those rough edges, you know, were not only rough, they were enriching, I think. Mm. You know, you, you, you anticipated, you looked forward. And part of that, you know, again, to uh, perhaps sound like a, you know, what we used to call laudator temporis acti, you know, a, a <laughs> praiser of bygone age. A romantic. Was a, well, yeah. <laughs> was a fasting. You know, we, when I was still growing up, you know, there was Eucharistic fasting from midnight. Mm. And uh, when you went to the Eucharist, uh, when you received communion, 
it was a bodily experience, you know, not mm-hmm. merely a, a cerebral experience. You know, the fasting, you know, in Lent, you know, in the vigils, in the rogation days. So, you know, there, there was a richness there that I think can be uh, underappreciated. Yeah. Well, and that, and that ties into that psalm. I mean, the how lovely is your dwelling place? I mean, obviously, there's that initial, you know, the, the aesthetic power of the church and the way that it's laid out and designed. But in hearing that psalm after communion, there is you are also the dwelling place of the Lord, having just received. Yes, and, yes, yes, yeah. yes. You had mentioned, you know, when we chatted by email, you know, the uh, even songs. But, you know, I, it brought to mind some of the songs we sang, mm-hmm. you know, in uh, in those days. I mean, they, they were, for the most part, English songs. And, you know, maybe their musical value was not superlative. But <laughs> but nonetheless, they, they, they impacted, you mm-hmm. know, a young person growing up. And, and just two of them came to mind. You know, oh, God, I am not worthy that thou shouldst come to me, but speak a word of comfort. My spirit healed shall be. Mm-hmm. And then another one that you may be familiar with, uh, Jesus, my Lord, my God, my all. Mm-hmm. How can I love thee as I ought? So there was there was also an affectivity, you know, that was touched by the more popular devotions and uh, and the hymns. So all of that to say that, you know, I it was a rich upbringing for which uh, you know, I remain grateful. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I will still sing those hymns as I... Uh, toddle around in my retirement <laughs> i mean that, that was all very rich and there's like five different things i want to come back to so we'll sure uh, we'll, we'll hit on them as we go okay i definitely did want to talk to you about vatican ii and i this is a, a this is a question i have for I, I i've been able to interview a few people who you know were present in rome for the council uh, and i'm especially interested in your experience as a student at the time and you, you described yourself as a, a Vatican II priest, a Vatican II theologian. And I'm curious, not just in terms of, you know, the, the debates over the spirit and the letter of uh, the text of the council or anything like that in terms of the after effects, but just right. being there in that time, how did that shape your experience as a student and as someone going into the priesthood? Yeah. Now, just as a prelude, another, what I call the Felix culpa of my mm-hmm. life, you know, from the... Uh, Exultet, you know, or happy fault, <laughs> was that through uh, a mistake, a mistaken reading of a letter, instead of living at the North American mm-hmm. College, you know, and as you know, in Rome, the colleges, you know, are really residences. Yeah. And the education, the more formal education is done at one of the pontifical universities. Mm-hmm. So rather than living at North American College, which is where, you know, all of my uh, co-diocesans lived. I lived at a small Italian residence called Collegio Capranica. Huh. Completely, was that, was that I just mean, a clerical error? or was that? Well, you may have to edit this out. <laughs> it, was, it was due, from what I was told, to a misreading by Francis Cardinal Spellman of the letter that came from Rome. Huh. Because when we left the seminary in May, at the end of the year, and you know would not leave for Rome until September, three of us were told we would be going to Rome, which meant living at North American College. Mm-hmm. And then a month into uh, the summer, I received this panicked phone call. Matter of fact, uh, even before I received the panicked phone call, we were going around speaking with people who had been in Rome. And one of them was uh, a friend of yours, David Tracy. Mm-hmm. 
Tracy was back after his second year because of um, illness. And so we actually went to visit David, the three of us, and uh, you know, spent uh, an hour or two with him <laughs> listening to his experiences. Now, remember, the council had not yet opened. Mm-hmm. This was the summer of 62. And then the panicked phone call came. It was explained to me, uh, not by the cardinal, but by uh, the rector of the seminary, that the letter had said, because the council is opening, we'll have to take one less than usual. Usually they sent two, and somehow that was misread as one more than usual. (laughs) When the mistake was discovered, they called Rome, North America, and they said, all right, we'll take two. We can't possibly take three. And the rector knew of this Collegio Capronica. He sent a telegram. They said, yes, we'll take an American. And of the three of us, I was the only one whose name ended in a vowel. Yeah. And I wound up at Collegio Capronica. <laughs> and quite honestly, for me, it was an act of faith because I had never heard of the place. Uh, all I could envisage was an Italian seminary where they locked you in at night. <laughs> and as it turned out, if, if you've been to Rome and stand with your back to the Pantheon, it is one block up from the Pantheon. So in the center of Rome, it had the advantage of being quite by you know, North American standards, which housed about 250 seminarians, only 50 seminarians, mm. mostly were Italian, and they spanned the ages from about 18 to about 26, because there were some youngsters who were just beginning philosophy, those of us who were starting theology, and some who were even doing doctorates. Mm. So you had a real mix of people Mostly Italian, uh, though there were a couple couple of other Americans, actually, two Spaniards, two from Malta. So it was an international house, and the, uh, the language of the house was Italian. And then the other aspect of it was that it is known as the first seminary in the world, hmm. because it was founded by this Cardinal Capronica, hence the name, a mm-hmm. hundred years before Trent. Hmm. And so I consider myself pre time. <laughs> I like and it. so, you know, it was wonderful. It was, uh, we would walk to uh, the Greg, because uh, we went to the Gregorian University, mm-hmm. as did the North American students. But rather than being bussed down, you know, from the distant college, we would just walk there. Mm. And so I was able to, getting back finally, uh, becoming a garrulous old man, but I uh, <laughs> That's that's why I'm that's why I wanted to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. I, uh, you know, you could feel uh, not only see but feel the opening up during the council. You know, obviously we all wore uh, cassocks, mm-hmm. but you know, bit by bit in the course of the four years of the council, even externally, what what they called the clergyman was introduced. You know, the clerical shirt. Mm-hmm. So people suddenly. Uh, priests were suddenly, you know, dressing in clerical shirts instead of cassocks Hmm. with a wide range of colors, you know, more than you see in the States. So you you had white clerical shirts and purple clerical shirts. And so, but in addition to that, you know, despite the fact that we had some fine teachers at the Gregorian, uh, one of whom you interviewed earlier, I had Mm -hmm. Francis Sullivan for Ecclesiology, uh, René Latourelle for Revelation, I had Bernard Lonergan for Christology, hmm. Juan Alfaro for uh, faith. So they were excellent teachers, mm-hmm. though they taught in Latin, mm-hmm. you know, and that that was a limitation. 
But what was going on outside of the classroom was even more exciting. So that every night you had lectures, so you would hear Kondra, or you would hear Delubach, or you would hear Rana. And so, you know, this opening up was not merely a sort of physical opening up of the attire that was worn, but, you know, even more, of course, an intellectual opening mm-hmm. up. I mean, just to cut short, perhaps, you know, the a moment which is indelible for me is, you know, the moment in November of uh, 1962, when uh, the document, which you know had been uh, prepared by the Theological Commission on Revelation, was presented to the fathers, de fontibus revelationis, mm-hmm. you know, on the fonts of revelation, yeah. and over well, well. Over 60% of the fathers, you know, in effect said, we don't want to work from this draft. Mm-hmm. We want to start anew. But as you recall, the ground rules of the council were that in order for something to be repudiated, it, have to, it has to have a two-thirds vote. And they didn't reach two-thirds. But John XXIII, you know, in his wise way, decided that if uh, 60% I think it was, didn't want to work from this, you know, let's start anew. And that's when, of course, he reconstituted the commission uh, amid Ottaviani and Bayer, the the joint chairs of of a joint commission, uh, out of which came what, you know, I have written about and considered the, uh, you know, the primary document of Vatican II, you know, the Constitution on Divine Revelation, Mm. Dave Ebbum. Yeah. And then just as a little aside, which you may get, you may have a chuckle for, uh, I talk about John XXIII's intervention as the, uh, the one exercise of papal primacy to which Hans Kuhn never objected. <laughs> yeah. You have a great laugh. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, but that was an electric moment. Uh, yeah. There, there, there were, uh, I can imagine. Four, yeah, there were four theologians at Copernica who were serving as sort of uh, ushers during the council. Okay. And they would come back in time for lunch, you know, after the morning mm-hmm. session of the council. And, uh, you know, we would avidly, uh, you know, pick their brains for what had happened that day. And and that day was, you know, the I think it was November 20th, mm-hmm. but uh, thereabouts, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's just so vivid. I mean, there, there was an electricity in the air. And if you look at Congar's uh, journal for that day, uh, he says, uh, in effect, you know, I would never have believed it, you know, mm. this, uh, this uh, outcome. So, wow. Yeah, it was great. I know. So I know one of the things Francis Sullivan said was, because as you said, you took him for ecclesiology, and he, you know, he had written his, you know, right. his, his his one. I think he'd written. I think he'd finished his first volume on ecclesiology before it started, and then he either didn't finish or didn't get to the second volume because everything changed so much. Right. Um, right. And I, I'm wondering, like, as a student, you were doing your STL at the time. You know, right. e- even as a student, did you like the the sense of change? Did you feel like? Did it mostly feel like new excitement? Did it feel like loss? Did it feel like, you know, you learned a bunch of stuff and you needed to learn new things? Like, what was the, as, as a student, what was the sense of it? Yeah, no, I think it was a sense of, you know, great expectation okay. uh, that the, um, you know, the, I mean, Frank Sullivan, who's, you know, as you know, is, is a wonderful, wonderful man. He jokes about 
the Latin volume that you refer to as being the last Latin manual ever written. <laughs> there was never another. I mean, he, uh, and it's true, you know, and, uh, you know, poor, these guys, I mean, I mean, obviously the Italians were more fluent, but, you know, Francis Sullivan had a New England accent that you could cut with a knife, yeah. you know, and him, him doing his, uh, you know, his dutifully, you know, lecturing in Latin. But, uh, yeah, it, it was, uh, you know, the, the house that I was in was uh, quite full. Uh, you know, intellectually, there, mm-hmm. there was some really fine uh, people. Uh, one of those people that I mentioned who uh, was in fourth theology at the time and, you know, was uh, an usher at the council and would report back was a man whose name you may have heard, but he's certainly one of the you know, foremost Italian theologians, uh, uh, Giuseppe Ruggeri, mm-hmm. with whom I'm still in uh, contact. He, he's now, uh, you know, he, he formed part of, even though his field is not history per se, but, you know, but systematic theology, he, uh, you know, was very much and is very much involved still in the so-called Bologna school, you mm-hmm. know, the, uh, the historians of, of the council. Yeah, um, he, he worked on that, that giant five volume history, right? With right. Jack and, r- yeah. Right. Alberigo. Right. Yeah. 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 No. He, so, you know, the, these were people, I mean, they were, they were, he in particular was reading Lonigan avidly and he felt, I, I think perhaps a little bit unfairly that uh, Lonigan was the only professor at the grad, you know, who really challenged him. But, um, yeah, Lonergan was a big influence upon uh, you know, people, uh, Americans in Rome at the time, you know, people like Comanche, whom you mentioned, and Tracy, uh, Bernie McGinn. Uh, so it, it was very much a sense, I think, of, for, for most of us, of you know, uh, the real, you know, a, a sort of new dawn in theology, you know, a sort of, uh, you know, arid scholasticism giving way to you know, a, a much more engaging biblical and historically based approach to theology mm-hmm. at the time i suppose you know the the, the most influential figure for me was uh, was rana mm-hmm. and you know that lasted probably through the 1970s but you know I, I remember i could almost still tell you the day and the time and the place where i read his uh, article the concept of mystery in catholic theology mm. you know one of the early one of the essays the early volumes of uh, theological investigations mm-hmm. And another one, which was very influential upon me, what is a dogmatic statement? And in both of them, that sense of mystery as life-giving and nourishing, and not just the mysteries in a sort of, you know, uh, almost a cut and dried fashion, but, mm-hmm. but the life-giving mystery. It's the same sense that I picked up from Congar. And I, I think the, uh, you know, the so-called Nouvelle Théologie is... Uh, you know, a movement that I still have great sympathy for, you know, a, a sort of recovery of uh, the depth of the tradition back beyond Trent uh, with, the, with the Fathers and the New Testament. So so that race source small, mm-hmm. I think, was tremendously important for for many of us. You know, I think after the Council then, uh, I, you know, to my view in any case, I think uh, things took a turn, which is not in keeping with what the council intended. I mean, in some quarters, things took a turn. Sure. But during the council, it was... But even even there, you know, towards the end of the council, so, you know, we're talking about now, the council ended December of 65, and I subscribed to a concilium, 
mm-hmm. right, which was the uh, the review that was supposedly to you know further the spirit of sure. Vatican II, you know, founded by Rahner and Stilabitz. By and and at the time it was not even available in English, so I had the French edition for a couple of years. But I guess you know the the same turn that led von Balthasar and uh, de Lubach and Ratzinger to move uh, towards you know, the founding of Comunio mm-hmm. was a turn which you know I eventually uh, took, mm-hmm. and we can talk more about that if you'd like. Yeah, I, I mean, I am sort of curious about that. I it's partly, I guess, the question is interesting to me as someone who, I mean, I wasn't raised Catholic, and so. My my experience of Catholicism is a little bit different as a convert, um, sure. And also, I, I I sometimes think like at least for me in in the the generation in which I grew up and, and the generation in which my theological training occurred is I I have somewhat less of an attachment I think to the to what sometimes is portrayed as a, a battle between the concilium and communal schools. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I am I'm a, I am genuinely curious sort of what your like what that turn was for you or what the the catalyst or, or push for that was for you yeah and you know as i think all of these interviews that you do uh, illustrate you know one one can't separate you know one's sort of theological stance from one's autobiographical experience yeah. you know just as you referred to your, your own conversion experience so to speak so for me an important period a very difficult period was uh, 67 to 70 Mm. so i'm back from rome and i uh, served as at the time what was called an assistant pastor in a parish for one year and then i was asked to go on for graduate study and i was a sort of pioneer it was the, the 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 beginning of the movement of catholics and especially priests and and sisters to do theology in non-catholic institutions yeah so in 1967 i went to yale and lived from 67 to 70 in new haven and those years uh, were a time of tremendous turmoil you know both politically socially culturally and theologically. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I've written a little you know, uh, reflection about how I envy people like you, for, who, <laughs> for whom, now maybe, maybe this is romanticizing, but for whom uh, graduate study was halcyon. <laughs> there was nothing halcyon about 67 to 70 at yeah. Yale. I was living for the first two years there at the Catholic Center, because remember, I'm a newly ordained priest, mm-hmm. living at the Catholic Center, having really replaced the sublime Latin liturgy with an English, which was poorly translated, singing hymns, which not only were sentimental, but they were inferior. Mm -hmm. And with this urge, well, what are we going to change this week? Mm. What new thing can we do? Well, we'll leave out the washing of the hands, or we'll leave out this. So from the point of view of the church, plus priests were leaving in droves. Priests and religious from 67 to 70 were leaving in droves. Mm. And so there was not, you know, it was as though the foundations had been tremendously shaken. And then 1968 is what I call the Annus Horribilis, where you had two assassinations and the appearance of the encyclical Humanae Vitae. And again, what, as you know, this year is the 50th anniversary Mm -hmm both of uh, the assassination of King and Kennedy and the issuance of the encyclical. Now, whatever, again, one's final judgment about the encyclical is, nonetheless, it caused a tremendous rift within the church. 
In the meantime, the Yale Department of Religious Studies was in turmoil. Hmm. People were leaving. Uh, I wound up writing my dissertation with someone in the philosophy department because hmm. I could not find you know, anyone in theology with whom I was comfortable to work. And it was the Vietnam War. And my last duty, you know, official public duty as a Yale graduate student was to be a marshal on the uh, New Haven Green during the Black Panther trial. Mm. And the National Guard had been called out. So, wow. uh, so as I said, there, there, there's nothing. <laughs> I don't. I don't look back upon my graduate school years as, you know, with any particular fondness. Yeah. So that's why I I envy you. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember graduate school being very hard, but but not in those ways. <laughs> right, right, so. right, right. And you formed friendships, which yeah. you know have endured, and you know, you, you, you really had mentors in a way that I, I can't say that I did, except perhaps, you know, I was at Yale in the days before the so-called Yale School. Right. But, you know, the, the principles were already there, of course. And uh, two of my three dissertation readers were actually Hans Frey mm-hmm. and George, George Lindbeck. So uh, that, that was just a, a pleasure. And again, to, to talk a little bit about the theological shift you know, we, we talked about, you know, from concilium to uh, communio. One of the, my, my saviors that year was doing a directed study course with Hans Frey on the theology of Karl Barth. Mm. And though I by no means would consider myself Barthian, the absolute centrality of Christ yeah. has remained with me, which of course then was carried over by von Balthasar. Yeah. So that's, that's the sort of shift and as you know, it's uh, so much is contextual. So when Rana appealed to me in the late 60s, it was that sense of mystery and not only, you know, the propositional mysteries, mm-hmm. but, you know, mystery as enlivening and all embracing. And of course, as you know, then he, he further then, you know, differentiated the mystery of the Trinity, the mystery of the incarnation, sure. the mystery of grace. But, you know, as a sort of organic whole, so to speak. What I began to, again, speaking personally, to, to, to find in some of the currents of you know, the post-conciliar theology was what I call an empty apophaticism. So it's one thing to have Rana stressing the importance of mystery that can never be encapsulated. But I think that then became in some of the, you know, Rana's acolytes, especially in the States, what I call a sort of empty apophaticism. So you had a sort of via negativa without substantive content. Okay. And I, I, I really saw the need to reaffirm what I have been calling the Christic center. That okay. The loss of the Christic center, I think, is what brought me to von Balthasar and, and then Ratzinger, who I, I suppose if I had to choose you know, one figure now who <laughs> is a guiding light it's uh, the theology of ratzinger okay in 1970 then you know having escaped yale uh, with the, the the whiff of tear gas in the air i uh, started teaching at the diocesan seminary in new york don woody and again you know you 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 no longer had the benefit or handicap you know if you will of the manuals mm-hmm. and so what did you do yeah. Uh, so I, I taught the introductory course in theology, which was the theology of Revelation. 
And aside from some few articles, what did you do? And happily, at least from my point of view, happily there appeared the year before, I think, in its English translation, Joseph Ratzinger's Introduction to Christianity. Sure. And so I used that as the basis for the course at Dunwoody. And that has been a sort of mainstay throughout. I, mean, I probably have read the book 20 times by now. And even in my retirement, as you know, I left Boston College three years or so ago after mm-hmm. uh, almost 30 years and have since offered a seminar uh, on the theology of Pope Benedict at Seton Hall last year and at the New York Seminary this, uh, this past year. And so Introduction to Christianity remains a sort of mainstay. And even after 20 years, I keep finding things in it. You might enjoy this at, at Seton Hall. One, one of the students, giving a final evaluation of the course, uh, said uh, of Ratzinger, he says the same thing, but he never repeats himself. <laughs> Which I thought was pretty neat. And then even at BC, uh, you know, there, there was the, the student who would come up to me and say, you know, why did not anyone introduce me to this book before? Mm-hmm. You know? So I think it's a real, as you know, it's, it's a classic by now. And I think it's been translated into 30 languages. Yeah. But I think it still holds. I mean, obviously, he would write it differently today. But, but I think the, uh, you know, the foundations uh, are still quite good. Yeah. One last anecdote. A, a, a former student of mine whom I had in my early years of teaching, when Pope Benedict visited New York some years back, he had the occasion to actually meet him. Mm. And uh, he, he said to him, uh, you know, Your Holiness, yours is the first theology book I ever read, Introduction to Christianity. And, you know, the Pope was pleased. But I said to my former student now, an eminent Monsignor, but did you tell him who assigned the book? <laughs> but no, he didn't. M- so. Missed your shot. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I had um, the opportunity a couple of years ago, I was teaching a course on sacraments and liturgy to men who are becoming deacons, uh, permanent deacons. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. In Florida. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of mm-hmm. the, one of the things that we do in his apartment is we do the, the academic formation right. for a few dioceses. And mm-hmm. uh, so we read spirit of the liturgy together mm-hmm. as sort of the, the concluding text for the semester. And it was great. It was really quite enriching. Wonderful. And they, you know, they were, I mean, they were all obviously familiar with, with Ratzinger as, as Pope Benedict and, were sort of aware of him, but I think for a lot of them, it was the first substantive work they'd read by him, and that was a very, it was, it was a very, it was a great experience as a teacher. So uh, that's great to hear. Yeah, I, I use that, you know, in these seminars that I've given the past two years, and and again, I, I, there's just a richness to it, and and again, one of the items, you know, as you know, towards the end, the importance of the body, mm-hmm. and I, I think that's you know, there, there's a real sense that uh, we need to recover some more of you know the, the sort of somatic dimension of theology and spirituality yeah and so that brings me back to something there are a couple of things i wanted to come back to and that leads mm. to one of them you you published a few years ago a book uh rekindling the christic imagination and, and you've mentioned right. this several times so far today and well, I was wondering more if you could say a bit about like what the what the focus of your your argument or or concern there is, and both 
in what way you think the cryptic imagination has been lost, but also maybe what are some what are some ideas for how both individuals and communities might might rekindle it. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, a good yeah, that's not too much <laughs> <laughs> no well you know to, to start with i mean I, I think at a base point and, and i begin the book with you know something of a discussion of day verbum and and its absolute importance but also to me the somewhat strange fact at least in my opinion of fact that day verbum has um, receded you know in uh, theological discourse so to speak I, you know, I, I've noted over the years that you know, even in some references to Dei Verbum, what is not highlighted is what for me is the absolute key point that, you know, Christ is the mediator and fullness of revelation. Yeah. So that firm Christocentricity of Dei Verbum. So, so that, if you will, is my point of departure. Okay. And when I talk, I use that word Christic, which is certainly not unique to me. I mean, Théo de Chardin used it. I mean, it's, it's used in Europe more frequently. But my sense of it, or the, what, the reason I, I, I talk about it, is that I try to convey thereby, and, and in you know, my further exposition, the fullness of the mystery of Christ. So that though it is obviously centered in you know, the historical Jesus of Nazareth and his passion, death, and resurrection, it extends beyond that to the church as the body of Christ mm -hmm. and even to its cosmic implications. So there's a fullness of the mystery of Christ, which I, I, I think we, we, we have not sufficiently. I mean, who who can ever sufficiently, you know, uh, plummet? But nonetheless, that uh, to bring to the attention of ourselves and our people this this fullness of mystery. So, you know, I, I'm all for mystery, but the mystery has this Christic content. Mm -hmm. What has been important to me for many years, but more and more it comes to the fore, is the importance of the letter to the Colossians. Okay. And, for example, the Christological hymn of Colossians, you know, Colossians 1, 15 to 20. I mean, you, you could spend a month just meditating upon those, the, the audacity of those five verses mm. or so. But that then, so what I talk about in my own work is the pattern of novum transformation. So the absolute newness and uniqueness of Christ, the novum of Christ, which I think Colossians, the first half of Colossians brings to the fore. But then what that leads to is not merely a, uh, well, that's nice information, but as I would say to my undergrads at Boston College, revelation is not for the sake of information, but for mm -hmm. the sake of transformation. Mm -hmm. And so beginning with, you know, chapter three of Colossians, the transformation from the old self to the new self. So the transformation in Christ from the old self to the new self. So for me, that's absolutely key. And that's what I try. And another way of saying it is, is the absolute inseparability of theology and spirituality. So if your theology is the mystery of Christ, your spirituality is living in Christ. Mm -hmm. So that is for me, you know, the, the, the sort of golden thread that, uh, that I try to pursue in you know, whatever I write or whatever I speak. And, and one key verse, which is also key, a uh, man I have not met, well, I mentioned him in passing way back when, but Louis Bouillet is another person besides Ratzinger that I find so nourishing. And in his recently reissued Introduction to Spirituality, which was written well before Vatican II, but I think if you read it, it's as germane today 
as it was then. Mm. If you will, the, the, the key verse, which, you know, it, it becomes the sort of leitmotif of his exposition, is the verse of Colossians, uh, and the mystery is this, Christ in you, hope of glory. Mm. So that sense of, uh, to use another word, of mystery and mysticism is, is what I'm after. And in a secular age, so just to refer to Taylor for a mm-hmm. moment, I don't know if you were at Taylor when I interviewed, uh, if you were at BC when I interviewed Taylor some years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he, he came to Boston College and they asked me to you know, do an interview with him. Hmm. And, and I, I remember I, being there for a talk that he gave, but. Uh, well, then yeah. you, you didn't show up for the interview. You, I, you missed the interview after the That might the be talk. the case. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, he, uh, he, he taught, it was jointly sponsored by philosophy and theology, and he, he spoke uh, publicly, and then there was a public interviewer. Okay. But in, in any case, you know, what I have always found intriguing is in the reviews of Taylor or the discussion of Taylor, uh, Taylor as a critic of modernity doesn't seem to me to uh, receive enough expression. So when I talk about rekindling the Christic imagination, you know, I sort of draw somewhat upon Taylor in that, as a matter of fact, at the beginning of the book, I put Taylor in discussion with uh, Pope Benedict, mm-hmm. you know, to trying to, hmm. and the truncated imagination of secularity, you know, the sort of one-dimensional nature of secularity, and the atrophy of the spiritual senses, or, or personally, the atrophy of the physical senses, you know, as they're bombarded with images and are even deadened by the bombardment. Uh, and so to restore, you know, our senses and, you know, to cultivate spiritual senses. And uh, like, like Taylor, you know, I find uh, as uh, sort of prolegomena to rekindling the Christic imagination, you know, poets and literary figures like Gerard Manley Hopkins, whom he discusses, Flannery O'Connor, Andre Dubus. So when I taught the undergraduate core course at Boston College, you know, I would try to introduce, you know, the more existential, experiential dimension through writers like Hopkins and O'Connor and Andre Debus. And then I know you're interested in film as well, you mm-hmm. know, and show, show films like, uh, you know, the perennial Babette's Feast, mm-hmm. but of gods and men, you know, the story of the, the, uh, the Trappists who were um, killed in North Africa. And now the, the latest, which I, I wish I could show to undergrads and get their impressions of, is uh, A Quiet Place. Mm. Have you seen that? I haven't, but I, I, I'm mm. familiar with it, but I haven't. I'm, I'm not good at horror movies. so. Uh. Well, that's what people tell me. I, you know, I, I'm not a, 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 a movie uh, addict, but an interesting little sidebar to this is John Krasinski was an altar boy in the parish mm. where I lived for 30 years in Newton Center. Oh, uh, so I, uh, you know, I knew him uh, when, so to speak. <laughs> and it's an incredible film, I think. Uh, I mean, you know, obviously there are the horror dimension is mm-hmm. important, but, but uh, you know, the, the dimension of silence, the dimension of, uh, you know, family love and commitment and sacrifice. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's an incredible film. I, I will ch- I will get over my my concerns and I will watch it. I, you've sold me. Well, I actually even bought it, you know, on Blu-ray. So uh, you might splurge. <laughs> it's for a good cause. Can do. So an element of this for you, as best I can tell, and you've you've mentioned earlier in, in the interview, you know, the the aesthetic dimension uh, and the, yes. the affective dimension. 
Right. Um, and I know that's a very significant part for you. And is that, I mean, do you, like we, we talk in the tradition about the transcendentals of, of the good and the true and the beautiful. And I, I know often there's a sense that the beautiful is the, the overlooked one. Right. Or the, or the beautiful is the, the, the most idiosyncratic of them. You know, the beauty is in the eye of the beholder kind of approach. Right. Right. Do you do you think in recovering the Christic imagination, a better cultivation of a, of an aesthetic sensibility is is essential to that, or, oh, or I, a help I, towards I, it? Or yeah, I I think so. I think so. You know, you know, Bishop Robert Barron, as you well know, mm-hmm. you know, really follows von Balthasar as you know, thinking that you know, in a secular culture, you know, the the approach through beauty is uh, is absolutely key. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the proviso I would put upon that, again, in, in my own experience, is the atrophied senses that, you know, we are so bombarded by images. You know, I, I always marvel, you know, the, uh, Sister Wendy Beckett, you may know, is you know, that art historian. And, you know, she speaks about, you know, maybe taking in three masterpieces and that's it for the day. You know, the, the intrinsic <laughs> connection between uh, actually seeing a masterpiece and contemplative prayer. Mm-hmm. But today you go to a, a museum and uh, what a friend of mine used to call roller skating through the Louvre. Mm-hmm. You know, you, 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 they go speeding by and now it's, that was 30 years ago when he said this, now it's even worse. It's just, yeah. you know, taking cell phone uh, pictures of the, not even looking at the picture, mm-hmm. just taking a picture of the picture or a selfie with the picture. So, you know, I call it Mona Lisa and me. <laughs> so I think that there is so much work to be done. And I, I mean, you're, you know, you're dealing with undergrads all the time. I mean, uh, how to be, uh, how to cultivate silence. I mean, can we do that even in the classroom Yeah. You know, before class begins and people getting fidgety with silence? Uh, how do we help uh, people, you know, cultivate the ability to, uh, to not merely look, but to see. So I, I think, you know, it's, the aesthetic is important, but uh, it, it's almost as though one has to do some preparatory work, you know, to yeah. get people into the aesthetic. But what, of course, you know, what uh, for me is so appealing about the Christic, if you will, is that, you know, in Christ, I think the the, the beautiful, the good, and the true, you know, the, the three transcendentals that you refer to, mm-hmm are integral. I mean, so that, uh, you know, in Christ, finally, the, you know, he is the beautiful one. Uh, one of the books I have not mentioned, which, which has influenced me is Leclerc's love of learning and desire for God. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so that, that affective sense of, you know, the beauty of Christ, but also the moral sense of, you know, the goodness of Christ. And then if you will, finally, the epistemological sense of, you know, the truth of Christ, mm-hmm. so they cohere. Now we're all finite, and we we can't do justice to everything at once. But at least you know the Christic imagination, I think, embraces you know the beautiful, the the good, and the true. And of course, then there's the absolute scandal that you know the the beauty finally of the cross is what Augustine calls you know the uh, deformed beauty. Mm-hmm. And so to, to to come to terms with that that. Uh, you know that, that that the truly beautiful one is the one who uh, whose sacrifice redeems us. Yeah, and the, and the true one is is folly and yeah, 
Right. Yeah. Right. Right. So. Right. I had one last kind of more serious question before turning to some less serious ones. And it, it's, you know, as I was sort of doing my preparation to talk with you, one thing that, that sunk in that I had always been aware of is you have been extremely prolific in writing for publications like La Servitaire Romano and First Things and America and Commonweal and really writing in a sense for a more popular audience, these, these you know, shorter digestible pieces. Right. Uh, and I, I was wondering, in part, was that was that an intentional choice for you to to target that more popular audience? And and I mean, why? It seems like that was very important for you in your career. And I'm, I guess I'm curious what pushed you to that. Yeah. No. Thank you. I, I think you're absolutely right. You know, the the you know the, the 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 one book I have itself is you know rather slim, at least quantitatively. I hope it has some uh, merit qualitatively. Uh, Partly, I think it goes back to my grad school days mm. in that not having, if you will, you know, a mentor. I, I actually wound up doing my dissertation on uh, the American religious philosopher Josiah Royce mm-hmm. and really never did anything much more with the <laughs> dissertation. You know, unlike, you know, I say, you know, younger colleagues of my own who, you know, mapped out a direction for their further research already mm-hmm. and, and very often turned, as you know, the dissertation, you know, redone into their first book yeah and uh, all you know all merit to them for that so i was always uh, you know between not having you know that initial orientation and then teaching in a seminary for the first eight years much more of a generalist than a specialist in theology so partly it's autobiographical uh, partly it's also the commitment that you know my conviction is that theology is an ecclesial discipline mm-hmm. and it's for the sake of the church and therefore, rather than, you know, merely writing for, you know, my professional colleagues, you know, I wanted to write, as you suggested, for a wider audience. You know, I, when my 30 years at Boston College, uh, I lived in the one parish, Sacred Heart and Newton mm-hmm. Center, because again, for me, uh, it's absolutely central that theology have its matrix in the liturgy. And for me, the, uh, you know, the key theological moment of, of my week was the celebration of the Sunday liturgy and, you know, the preaching therein. So, uh, you know, I think it's both, uh, as I say, autobiographical, but also, uh, you know, commitment wise, you know, you know, as you know, um, first things in Commonweal and America will, you know, have subscribers in the range of uh, 20,000 and more. Theological studies has what about two thousand everything. So <laughs> on a good day. <laughs> so again, it, 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 right. and it's not to disparage that. I mean, that's absolutely necessary. And you know, I read it. Uh, you know, I read it and I read Comunio and uh, you know avidly. But yeah, my own orientation and commitment is theology at the service of you know the building up of the body of Christ. You know, in the more pastoral mode as well. That's that's super helpful to hear. I. You know, as a younger academic, you know, the my the formation I had as a graduate student was, you know, very much to in in the mold of the people who who, you know, trained me and whatnot. And so there was a strong focus on, you know, writing articles and writing a book and, and all that sort of right. thing. And and, sure. I, and I've done those things and I, I do enjoy doing them and I want to continue doing them. But, you know, something I've been thinking a lot over the last few years is, you know, trying to cultivate a more sort of public voice and popular voice. Mm-hmm. And I, I think like a lot of people, I like I have, you know, friends and family who send me emails and, 
messages and want things explained. And I, I remember very vividly my, my mom, who is not a particularly religious person, uh, when, when the Passion of the Christ came out, mm. she, she wanted me to go see it with her so I could explain things and talk about it with mm-hmm. her so she could understand mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I, I like doing those kinds of things, but it's sort of, you know, it, it's, that's not always rewarded in the Academy. No, of course not. And so right. I, I have tenure now, so I, I have the, you know, that safety net. <laughs> Right, I, I can do some of the the less rewarded work, and and doing a podcast is is a part of that. Although, I mean, even you know, like to some extent, the the audience I have for this is is people who are still fairly academically focused. But I I like the idea of being able to make theologians accessible in a way that isn't always the case. Yeah, so. and you know, you mentioned that this may have been before you actually started the podcast, but you know, your involvement in the uh, the diaconate program. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sure that uh, you know that that can be both challenging and also stimulating yeah. as to uh, you know how do you uh, present you know some of the uh, absolutely key uh, concepts of our faith in language that is intelligible and that is uh, also experiential. Yeah. Uh, just to to mention something that I haven't mentioned, but it's been very important for me. The you know, the, the, the very basic distinction that Cardinal Newman makes between the notional and the real. Mm-hmm. And for me, the question that animates me is how do we help people pass from the merely notional to the real? Mm. And one of the great things about Newman, of course, is his Catholic conviction that, you know, it's both and. It's not, well, you know, dismiss the notional. No, the notional is, is terribly important. The theological but then how does it become real? And, and as you know, for Newman, the imagination is uh, a key mode to help realize, you know, the truths of the faith. So and, and that's why the importance, uh, you know, I think of things like film and literature, art to uh, to help promote that passage from the notional to the real. I, I have uh, you may have heard me say this before, but I, I have kidded that the two greatest doctors of the church in the Western tradition are Dante and uh, Johann Sebastian Bach, mm. because their work, you know, just works on so many dimensions. You know, it, it's so deeply theological mm-hmm. and yet so affective. So th- th- those are my two heroes from mm. the street. Good. Among, amongst others. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. Right. All right. So I have a few somewhat less serious questions, and I always like to close with some of these. Mm-hmm. So my, my first one is you you went to a Jesuit high school, Jesuit college, the Gregorian, and you taught for 30 years at BC. Were you ever right. tempted to become a Jesuit? Yes. Uh, <laughs> as a matter of fact, as I mentioned before, in the eighth grade, they expected you to know what the rest of your life would be. So I, the parish where I went to school was actually staffed, uh, though I had the Christian brothers as teachers, was staffed by the Redemptorist Order of Priests. Hmm. And one uh, Thursday before Good uh, First Friday, you know, we, we were marched over to go to confession on the Thursday before First Friday. And I went confession to this wonderful Redemptorist priest who then at the end of the confession said, and do you know what you would like to do? And I said, yes, Father, I think I want to become a priest. And he said, oh, what, what, uh, what kind of priest? You know, what order? And I said, oh, I, I'd like to be a Jesuit. And he said, uh, oh, have you ever considered the Redemptorist? <laughs> and I said, no, Father. And to his credit, that, that was the end of it. But what I didn't say was, 
you know, the only real priests of the Jesuits. <laughs> well, I, I came to see that that was not completely true. So, so for a variety of reasons, I, I moved towards the diocesan priesthood. And, and I've been very fortunate, you know, that I feel I've had the best of both worlds in the mm-hmm. sense of, you know, both being able to teach for all these years, but also being parish-based, if you will. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I remember talking to, to David Tracy years ago about this, and he, mm. he said something that I thought was very, uh, it was kind of an irony in his life, he seemed to think, which was he had considered early on joining the Jesuits, but he, he felt called to be a parish priest. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> and he, and he, I mean, he had his, you know, his one year where he was based in the parish and he went back to grad school and. It never looked right. back. So. And he was very successful in the parish, at least with Bill Buckley. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, <laughs> I, ha- I ha- the, the, the book I have coming out on Tracy is a little biographical section, and uh, yeah, the, the William F. Buckley story shows up in that. Uh-huh. So, well, I uh, look forward to the book. Yeah, what what is its title? It's a, a Theology of Conversation, an Introduction to David oh, Tracy. Nice. Nice. So, nice. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, no, that that's absolutely true. He's a great conversationalist. Yeah. So I'm 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 very hopeful and. It should be out in November, mm-hmm. so hopefully it'll be out just in time for AAR, which would certainly help with sales. <laughs> yeah, so. absolutely. All right, my number two question: Of whom or what would you be the patron saint? <laughs> that I would be the patron saint of of uh, of someone or something. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It, it's, yeah. it's aspirational, but yeah. Mm. Oh dear, that that is a uh, you know. Uh, one phrase that I've been using, and you know, I, I hope it's not too high flown, is that you know, I I think you know, in in light of what we've been talking about, you know, the the, the absolute Christocentricity, the the transformative thrust, I, I try to uh, encapsulate that or recapitulate that maybe better in this sense of a Eucharistic mysticism. And so I, I, I would never claim to be patron saint of, of that, but, you know, a, 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 a humble worker towards, you know, the cultivation of a Eucharistic mysticism in the church. Because for me, the, the, the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, you know, is the pole star of mm-hmm. what we're about. Mm-hmm. And, what I find in so much of contemporary society is what I call, you know, the sort of absence. If we have time, let me just share a little Please. vision with you. You know, some years back, I had the good fortune of visiting uh, the Czech Republic. And, you know, Prague is a stupendous city and pretty much undamaged by World War II. But my friend who was uh, living in Prague at the time took me to a trip to the north of the country and just by chance, we went into a town, and there was a church in the town uh, that had been built by the Jesuits probably in the 17th century. So it was a Baroque church. And during the communists, it had been transformed into a warehouse. And entering the church, you know, the roof was dilapidated. There were the side altars you know, that uh, were prominent in, you know, the Tridentine period where, you know, the priest would say his daily mass. And on each of the altars was a tabernacle, except that it had been gouged out. 
So you had the empty tabernacle, if you will, like a, you know, like a, a gaping, uh, sightless eye, about you know, six on each side as you go mm. down the main aisle. And after the communists fell, that church was then, you know, was obviously you know, uh, deconsecrated, was turned into a sort of museum, but it was a museum of man's cruelty to man. Hmm. And so it had vestiges of, you know, prisoners of the Nazi era, uh, vestiges of, you know, the, the communist era, people tortured, emaciated. And the vision that struck me was that this is what happens when absence reigns, hmm. when real presence is violently, you know, extirpated from people's lives and experience Mm -hmm. and so that contrast between christian faith and the real presence of christ in the eucharist and this murderous absence another word that i like to play with is you know presence and face Mm. and torturers cover their faces so the defacing of humanity so i think that eucharistic mysticism you know, is not just a private devotion, but it really has, you know, as I think some people have written, political consequences. Mm-hmm. So that that is, you know, if, if I could lay claim to any small merit, it would be, you know, this attempt to further a sense of uh, Eucharistic mysticism. And in a way, I mean, just to end with this, perhaps, you know, going back to Hopkins, you know, that wonderful poem where, you know, Christ plays in 10,000 places, lovely in eyes, lovely in limbs, not his, to the Father who the features of men's faces. Mm. I think that encapsulates a lot of what you know, moves me, both aesthetically, affectively, morally, and, and finally, you know, epistemologically, so to speak. Well, and that, that concern connects back to what you were saying earlier about the risks of a sort of empty ap- apophaticism. Right. Yeah, where you, right. you sort of lose the fullness of the analogy. So Right. 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 This is a question we talked about a little bit earlier, but what would be your, your favorite or your least favorite liturgical song? <laughs> well, I have many favorites. What one that particularly, you know, has been striking me both because of the feast of uh, Saint Benedict that we celebrate and even more the feast of Saint Bernard. Uh, I've been preparing a couple of talks to be given on the feast of Saint Bernard. The that Latin hymn, Jesu Dulcis Memoria, mm. uh, because again, of the, uh, you know, the affective experiential sense of, you know, only the one who has experienced can really understand. When I, you know, in my early years, and when I first entered Dunwoody, the word experience was a no-no, because it was associated with modernism. Mm. And of course, I think there can be an undifferentiated appeal to experience. You know, that's my experience, that's your experience. But I think von Balthasar in the first volume of Theological Aesthetic really uh, rehabilitates experience. But it's an experience which, you know, if it's going to really achieve uh, its Christic fullness, is always a pastoral experience. So it's experience transformed. So experience, yes, but experience, you know, which is Christic and ecclesial, mm. if you will. So that's one one hymn, you know, of many. I I also think, you know, uh, the, the the wonderful uh, Eucharistic hymns of Thomas Aquinas. You know, mm-hmm. you 
you read the Sumer and you say, my God, this is notional. <laughs> but then you read uh, or you sing the hymns and you say, oh, you know, this makes it real. You know? mm-hmm. So I don't know if that uh, no, that's speaks to your question. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Number four, I know you come from an Italian-American family and that you spent a lot of time in Rome. I'm hoping to go to Italy next summer. Mm. I've never actually been, so this will be very exciting. My mm. wife, my wife is actually has dual citizenship in Italy. It's, it's part of this, oh. and so is it. What what one meal would you most recommend I get when I go to Italy? What, what one meal? Like, oh my what, Lord. What's, like, what's I mean, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna eat my way through the country. So so, but if there's if there's something in specific that you miss or that you would recommend, what would it be? I would say any pasta. I love pasta. Okay. And any pasta in Italy, in almost any restaurant in Italy, you can't go wrong with. Now, the, my, my nephew and his new wife just returned from their honeymoon from Italy. And, you know, they were able to go to uh, some of the smaller towns. And, you know, he was raving uh, about, you know, just the local dishes. So mm-hmm. if, if you, you know, if, if you can get out of, you know, Rome or even Florence, and go to some of the smaller towns and just go to you know the local trattoria and uh, you know get See the special have. of the yeah. house and also he was raving about the uh, the local wines you okay. know rather than necessarily you know buying a uh, you know an expensive bottle of wine very often the local wine now again he he had the good fortune he spent uh, they spent four or five days on Ischia you mm-hmm. know the, uh, the 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 island in the bay of naples and you know, they, they had a lot of local stuff, both produce and fish and local wine. So, but uh, if I may, uh, you know, aside from food, which is absolutely wonderful, if you can make a CZ, that's a must. Okay. Okay. Yeah, we're still planning. So uh, my wife's Good. family, you know, a couple of generations ago is from a town called Fostanovo. And I, I don't know anything about it yet. We're still doing our research, but... I, I'm, I'm now hoping... that, that is in uh, between Rome and Naples. Uh, is that, do I Rome have that? And, I think she said it was Rome and Florence, but I, ah. I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure. So it, it could be the other way. Yeah. Is it Fossa Nuova? Uh, Fosda F O S D I N O V A maybe. Ah, 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 I think. Ah. But don't don't quote me on that. <laughs> okay, okay. But I yeah. But we as we've been talking about you know possible plans. You know I mean I, I you know I want to hit the big cities and and I want to sure you know and and there are you know the big things I want to do. But I'm hoping that we can maybe spend a couple of days there as well. And um, well, you know, just, just just to end perhaps with this, you know, with the aesthetic and you know I mentioned of course literature and film and movies about mm-hmm. that's film, but but the importance of art and you know for me the. the the autobiographical issues, uh, you know, what are those artworks or icons that somehow were instrumental in one's own, you know, religious and theological formation? And one of them assuredly is the the cross, the mosaic of the cross is the tree of life in the church of San Clemente in okay. Rome. So I use that, you know, in, as you know, Rekindling the Christic Imagination has four works of art. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of them is... Uh, that mosaic, which dates from the 12th century, but the, the Basilica of San Clemente, you know, is, is a must. I mean, you know, people of course go to St. Peter's and St. Mary Major, but San Clemente is a must because okay. it also has excavations under it that you go down and you're able to be in the original 5th century basilica, hmm. and then you go down further and you reach the 1st century, uh, what may have been, you know, the 
Domus Clementis, you know, the, the House of Clement, which mm. started it all. And Duffy, the, uh, the Irish church historian, mm-hmm. uses that as his symbol of tradition. Hmm. So that, you know, tradition is this multi-layered but living uh, reality symbolized by, you know, the, the, the three layers of the Basilica of San Clemente in Rome. Hmm. That's fantastic. Well, Father, All right. Father Mbelli, thank you so much for talking with me today. I really appreciate it. Really, it's been my pleasure and thank you. The Daily Theology Podcast was produced this week by me, Stephen Oki. The music for the podcast was created by Matt Hines of the band Eastern Sea. If you haven't checked them out on Spotify yet, I'm not sure what the holdup is. Special thanks this week to Liturgical Press, who are enabling our giveaway of Father Mbelli's book, Rekindling the Christic Imagination. If you would like to enter for a chance to win the book, you can either retweet or share the announcement on the Daily Theology Twitter feed, which is at Daily Theo. Or you can leave a review of the podcast on iTunes and email a screenshot of your review. Additionally, all of our Patreon supporters are automatically entered in any of our book giveaways. If you like the podcast so much you would like to support us with a few dollars, go over to patreon.com slash dtpodcast. These pledges help us to cover the cost of hosting the podcast and hopefully in the future will enable us to get some better recording equipment so we can do live podcast events. Of course, if you would like to know more about faith-seeking understanding in everyday life, head on over to our website, dailytheology.org, our Facebook page, Daily Theology, or our Twitter feed, at Daily Theo.